Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, it's Michael Adams, nothing but the truth, one man's journey to find it. It is April the 7th, 2015. We're going to play a couple of uh, recordings there uh, on YouTube. Uh, first, we'll start with uh, Babylonian Wall. <clears throat> Red Bike, on Comstock, and uh, this is part nine. And we will do part 10 as well, because part 9 is pretty short. Then afterwards, we will play uh, episode one, uh, 214, a special guest, Visigoth, on Restoring America. He was on Alan's show a couple of nights ago, but Alan, he did a great job, and we will share with everyone else. So here we go, Babylonian Hole. It will say nine. I put nine and ten, and then ten, and then put brackets here at nine because, well, my book says ten. He says, Gordon says nine. It's there, folks, in the book. So, so <laughs> whatever part it is, uh, nine or ten, it's still the same thing. So. All right, here we go. This is the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. Time now for installment nine of The Babylonian Woe by David Astle from 1975. You won't be finding this in uh, your local Barnes & Noble or Borders bookstores or any, any of those Walden books, Crown books, whatever. They, they, they ain't going to be there. They're not going to have this one because they don't want you to know the stuff that's inside of it. And that's why. They do not want you to know what's inside this book, okay? The powers that be. If you're interested in knowing what's inside this book, listen on. Here goes part nine. Pergamum and Patain. Aristotle, author of some lucid thinking on the subject of money, if not ruthlessly penetrative, was himself married to the niece of a banker installed as co-tyrant or frontman with another such tyrant banker. Hermias, the tyrant of Assos, and Artineus, was a eunuch slave of a certain banker. He went to Athens and attended the lectures of Plato and Aristotle, 
and returning, he shared the tyranny of his master, who had previously secured the places around Atarnaeus and Athos. Subsequently, he succeeded him and went for Aristotle, is that went? Uh, and married his niece to him. In this slave, banker, philosopher, and despot, Leif sees a tyrant who owed his position to his wealth. He quotes Euaeon, the pupil of Plato, who, not far to the north at Lampsaxus, quote, lent money to the city on security of the Acropolis, and when the city defaulted, wanted to become a tyrant, unquote. While bankers in the present dream of entrapping the whole world via their united nations, in the past they contented themselves with entrapping just a city. Just as in the present they create an entirely false picture of the nature of their operations and carefully promote the legend that they are lending the public's money. And so they did in antiquity, we may rest assured. No doubt they spread exactly the same story in the time of the tyrants and people in that day, understanding no more about money than they do today, believed it. The following may be accepted as instance of their activities in ancient times. Quote, Pergamum, that city that arose in southwest Asia Minor, lasting as independent from 283 to 133 BC, was originally founded as the fortified treasury of Lysimachus, successor to Alexander in Thrace. This fort and the treasure therein, amounting to 9,000 talents, was in the charge of a eunuch steward named Philateros, who justified the trust reposed in him insofar as the management of this treasure was concerned. During the quarrels of the Diadochi, or successors to Alexander, presumably at the strategic moment, he transferred his allegiance from Lysimachus to Seleucus, Doubtless on condition, he be guaranteed his continued position as master of the treasury. Despite the murder of Seleucus by Ptolemy Chironus, the wily Philateros clung to the fortunes of the Seleucids, probably understanding in their particular case the political purposes of the international money power of Babylonia and Alexandria in these respects, and ingratiated himself with Antiochus, son of Seleucus, by buying the body of Seleucus from Ptolemy for return to Antiochus, thus, through it all, maintaining his position at Pergamum. Philateros proceeded to use the treasury to which he had so masterfully established almost total right with a skill which could only suggest training in the money shops of Babylon or Alexandria, or as close advisor, one so trained. The conception 
of the 9,000 talents of treasure in itself being the sole maintaining force behind the extended power of Pergamum would be quaint to say the least, as quaint indeed as the story of the 6,000 talents of silver held in reserve in the Acropolis at Athens as the sole finances with which the Peloponnesian War was fought, or in a later day, of the gold supposedly existing in the vaults of the Bank of England or its predecessor, and its parent bank, the Bank of Amsterdam, the vaults of the latter, on inspection by Napoleon after occupation of Holland, proving absolutely bare, 9,000 talents drawn on for military and civilian expenditures, extensive bribes, etc., would not go very far, unquote. Returning again to Professor Andriades in his Finances de Guerre de Alexandre le Grand, the annual expenditures of Alexander during the earlier years of his campaigning were 5,000 to 7,000 talents, which would, in the first year or two, certainly, until the Battle of Isis, 333 BC, have been in hard cash for the most part, to use the terminology of today's banker. That is, coined money or silver bullion, or the gold bullion of which the mines at Philippi had made steady yield. In the later years of campaigning, Andreades estimated the annual expenditures of Alexander at 15,000 talents. If the money for this expenditure derived from coined precious metal plunder, it would go even less far, for in newly occupied territories, the exploitation of the miseries of the people usual to these circumstances would exist. And there would be a collapse of quote-unquote credits, or abstract money, until reorganization set in, there would be total disturbance of the revenues deriving from taxes. Silver, particularly, would either move eastward against luxury trading, which seems to continue as much as ever in such times, or would disappear into hordes. During the first millennium B.C., the ratio of silver to gold never went below 10 to 1 being usually 13 to 1 in Europe and the so-called Middle East, in farther Bactria, India, and China, it was rarely more than 6 to 1 and in some parts as low as 1 to 1. Therefore, once precious metal coinage was spent, particularly silver coinage, and passed into the hands of merchants, contractors, etc., finally returning to the banks or money changers, with that field for assured profit by settlement of oriental trade balances with coined silver or silver bullion, such as clearly existed as according to Gresham's law, its local circulating volume might be assumed to decrease rapidly and without a doubt did so decrease. It might safely be said that the money power which enabled Pergamum to secure controlling interest over the cities of Pitane and Cyzicus was not drawn from what might be left of that store of 9,000 talents, 
the loan in the case of Petain, probably a very minor transaction, was sufficient to substantially ease the burden of a debt of 380 talents. It would have been part of a credit inflation which would have used the 9,000 talents or the legend in respect thereto as its base, and more than likely those interests holding the debt of the city of Pitain were themselves indebted by another ledger credit entry transaction to Pergamum. Thus, that quote-unquote credit money transaction, whereby Pitain was loaned money, would be no more than an entry in the books of Pergamum as a credit to Pitain, automatically being thence debited and transferred to the credit column of the holder of the loan as previously existing against Pitain, and thus returning him to solvency. In other words, Pergamum, at the cost of pen, ink, vellum, and slave scribe, or perhaps, and more likely, cost of a clay tablet and stylus book entry, was now in a position to dictate the political affairs of Pitain. Perhaps the agent for the Babylonian bankers, or their Alexandrian counterparts, as the previous holder of the Pitain loan may have been, consequently recovered his liquid position so far as Pergamum was concerned, and was now able to look around again for more profitable investments. The extent of the semi-military operations of the Attilid money power of Pergamum was shown, above all, by their purchase of the island of Agena for 30 talents. This island they most likely set up as a center for entry pot trade and a financial outpost, i.e., quote-unquote, branch bank, which had to be in opposition to the decaying Athenian money power, which at that time did not have the silver resources of its earlier days on which to base its money power and the legend of its great wealth. The Lorian mines were petering out, and those markets in South Russia, Thrace, etc., formerly supplied by Athenian manufactured products, were fast failing at the time of Pergamum and the Athelid, having set up their own local manufactories. Athens, no longer center of an empire, neither military or financial power, with fewer markets ready to settle debit trade balances with those slaves, so much required for silver mining, as had been South Russia, was likely just a pleasant place to live in. The storms brewed by settlement of international money power, as in days gone by, passed over. As Pergamum marks the beginning of that period when Delos and Rhodes were leading money and slave markets of the world, it would seem that some kind of agreement must have existed between those who controlled trade and finance at all these points. Considering the essential secrecy that necessarily attends the corrupt operations of so-called bankers, it may be quite reasonable to suppose 
that in Pergamum itself, in Achina, Delos, Rhodes, and for that matter, a dozen other trade centers, there was a class of persons who very well understood each other's interests, who very likely were related by racial and religious custom, and whose supranationalism transcended all city boundaries and borders of states. Money was their trade, and they married only amongst their own group as the best protection towards maintaining inviolable the secret of that financial hegemony they had established internationally, and which, in a way, had put them above kingship. No doubt, in the fevered imagination of some of them, one with the gods. Through the illusion of the establishment of silver as the standard of value internationally or nationally, and whose supply they totally controlled, it is true, they actually did wield that power which formerly had been the sole prerogative of the gods in the cities of ancient Sumeria, through their sons upon earth, the priest kings, even if only as the venal and self-interested men that they were. The activities of this group towards the instigation of wars and disturbances never ceased. Out of the needs of peoples in despair came their advantage and strengthened control, because they controlled the fiscal affairs of the temples, whose very existence became completely intertwined with their activities, it may safely be said that they controlled the oracular pronouncements, which so often could decide yea or nay to war. Out of rumor, generally, they guided the moods of the peoples. Such wars were necessary, much as today, towards the maintenance of their great arms industry and their continued control through the sale of the best and newest of weapons to that new quote-unquote conqueror who promised most of all to serve their purposes in the renewal of their stocks of treasure so necessary to maintain quote-unquote confidence and their stocks of mine slaves. War also revived that feverish and competitive demand for that treasure, and in the hurly-burly it created, merchants gladly accepted as money anything offered from seemingly reputable sources, including that abstract money denoted by ledger credit page entry the loan of which but cost the lender the entry by slave scribe on the clay tablet. Though immense real wealth might be offered as quote-unquote collateral, as against failure to repay such alleged loan by the date stipulated. The far-flung activities of Apollonius economic manager to Ptolemy Philadelphus, as recorded by Professor Rostovstev, give but a glimpse of this interlocking control by an Aramaic-speaking middle class 
within which the Hebrew may also have been an interwoven thread. Perhaps the weft, although not the weft and the warp. For indeed there is no evidence that he was all, and that such magnates that controlled the economy of the ancient world were many of them Jews. Nevertheless, the claim by the Universal Jewish Encyclopedia that the Hebrews, as a people who absorbed foreign cultures, yet rigidly maintained their national identity, caused them to be most appreciated by the brilliant and ambitious Alexander, should not be lightly dismissed. Alexander was trainee of Aristotle, who, as husband of the niece of Hermias, banker tyrant of Assos and Atimaeus, certainly should have come to learn something of the true meaning of money power. Alexander, therefore, presumably, had substantial understanding of the meaning of money relative to kingship. The Hebrew, as equally skilled in money and trade as the Aramean, and equally fluent in Aramaic, since he was established in most of the important cities of the ancient world, from the pillars of Hercules to India, in which Aramaic certainly existed as lingua franca, at least in those cities between India and the Levant, could very well have been a major part of that vehicle constructed by Alexander to spread his dream of Pan-Hellenism. His special concessions to Jadua, high priest in Jerusalem in 333 B.C., in respect to those Jews of both Judea and Babylon, and also in respect to the foundation of Alexandria, certainly suggest deference to a power far beyond that power, visibly represented by that relatively small group of people who dwelt at Jerusalem and on the highlands by which it was surrounded. According to the Universal Jewish Encyclopedia, during the siege of Tyre by Alexander, Jadua, high priest of Jerusalem, not wishing to offend Persia and Darius, had refused Alexander the troops and provisions he sought. After the fall of Tyre, Alexander advanced on Jerusalem, ancient ally of Tyre, as the assistance of Hiram, king of Tyre, towards the building of the Temple of Solomon will call to mind undoubtedly with the intention of reducing that city should no satisfactory settlement be reached. As Alexander neared the temple, so the story goes, the high priests, clothed in full vestments of gold and purple, and the priests, in their sacerdotal robes, and a great multitude dressed in white, went out to meet him, the decision having no doubt been arrived at that discretion was the better part of valor. Alexander, seeing the high priest and his mitre, on which was written the name of God, reverenced the name and saluted the high priest. He said he had seen a figure such as the high priest in a dream, who had told him he would give him lordship over the Persian hosts. Then Alexander entered the city and 
as was his usual custom with submissive cities, he sacrificed to their god. The fact that he gave the Jews of Palestine such special concessions as a year's remission of taxes, which was also extended to the Jews of Babylonia, and specially invited any Jew to settle in his city of Alexandria, would suggest that the visible help refused him by Jadua had been more than made up for by assistance of a less visible nature, such as, it might be reasonably expected, had helped to secure the fall of Babylon to Cyrus, ancestor of Darius, and founder of the Achaemenid dynasty of Persia. The stress on the Aramaic-speaking middle class of all those quote-unquote empires from the Assyrian until the successors to Alexander and perhaps beyond is more than justified in view of the results of the studies of various scholars. If Aramaic was the language of officialdom, under the Achaemenid rulers of the Persian Empire, and remained so under Alexander and the successors, it may reasonably be supposed that the official and merchant classes that used Aramaic as their everyday language had gone far beyond the borders of the Persian Empire, both to the east and to the west, as has been previously pointed out, with that Aramaic interstratum moved also to the east and west, the agents of that money power centered in Mesopotamia, heir to the secrets not only of the Sumerian priesthood, but of the priesthood of much more ancient times, selling as they went along the idea of the use of precious metal money. No sooner had short-sighted rulers instituted the use of precious metal money than the agents of such money power, to whom by now the ruler was beholden for supplies of bullion, were setting up, quote-unquote, modern banking houses. In short order, the various practices of dubious legality that are the foundations of such money power would be instituted. Firstly, that of the creation, relatively without limit, of abstract units of exchange, as through the institution of ledger credit page entry money, under whatever cover to create legality, and which the banker claimed was backed by his quote-unquote credit, parenthesis, as if he could have more quote-unquote credit than any sovereign people and their ruler, in parentheses, and which was usually backed in final analysis by little or nothing other than the sanction of a foolish prince. Secondly, from the point of view of maintenance of quote-unquote confidence, so far as lesser trade was concerned, was the issue of intrinsically valueless facsimiles of existing precious metal coinage, for every one of which a customer who accepted them in the exchanges thought that there was a precious metal original lodged in the local temple or acropolis. To our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Aramaic was the everyday language that would have enabled him to travel and converse freely with scholar, poet, priest, and merchant, certainly as far east as Peshawar. Aramaic is used in the Syrian Christian church, in the Jewish liturgy, and still lives in the villages of the anti-Lebanon in southeast Anatolia and on the eastern shores of Lake Ermia in Armenia. Thus, the opinion of Emil Kraling that the Aramean was the vehicle by which the so-called eternal values of Hellas and Israel were communicated throughout the Orient in a way concurs with the opinion of the Jewish encyclopedia referred to above, that those values denoted by Hellas withered and almost disappeared, while those as denoted by Israel through Christianity flourished until relatively recently, is merely further proof that money power must destroy the body on which it feeds and is nourished and the body it fed on at the time herein recorded, that is, immediately after Alexander, was Hellas, and indeed Israel itself. It cannot flourish alongside blind belief and simple faith, which instinctively tear off its impudent claims as they gnaw their way into the very heart of the tree of life. Man, he's right. Uh, money power is uh, like a parasite that kills the host, isn't it? Wow. Nevertheless, out of Babylonian money power itself, oblivious, it seems, to its own real self-interest, carrying Christianity as far as those limits unto which its total hegemony prevailed, Christianity itself rose as an island of love and goodness in an ocean of hatred, confusion, greed, and depravity that had come to exist as the ultimate result of at least 3,000 years of the depredations of such private money creative power. With one convulsive shrug, it threw off the snake-like coils re-establishing thereafter the natural order of life, of God, priest-king, and priesthood, and the people, all living as was ordained, with faith, piety, and sure belief. Thereafter, for a thousand years, international money power can only be faintly discerned as a smoldering ember, Oh, it's back now. That's why Astle wrote the book, I'm sure. A fire not entirely extinguished. Evidence thereof being an occasional wisp of smoke, as it waited for a day when a certain evil wind might blow and flames come forth again to deal man total woe. Well, those were the, the colonial era gave that back resurrected the mercantilism, the money powers. And it's probably, uh, then you, it, uh, you've got the acceleration, the accentuation with the uh, rise of the British 
empire, and then, oh, boy, they've perfected it now. Here, stupid Americans. And I just got an email from a friend telling me to raise my flag, to display my American flag proudly tomorrow on Veterans Day. Idiot. Uh, I say friend. Yeah, he's a friend from many years ago, but I, I don't really talk to him much anymore. And um, why? My eyes are open. His are willfully closed still. And uh, we live in a nation that the money powers have perfected their evil in this nation. And it started right from the start in this country. This country is a total fraud. And my buddy wants to fly his flag tomorrow. That's fine if he wants to, but these idiots always want to get you in on their folly. Fly the flag. You notice I didn't email him and ask, tell him not to fly your flag, you dummy. Anyway, uh, idiots like to share their idiocy. But uh, at any rate, that was part nine of The Babylonian Woe by David Astle. I'm Gordon Comstock. This has been the Ministry of Truth. This is the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. We're going to get into uh, part 11 of The Babylonian Woe by David Astle from 1975. Before we do, I, I sometimes do little announcements before, for a couple of minutes before I, I get into the book. Sometimes. Well, I'm going to do one this time. Just saw something that uh, irked me. Stuff that I see all the time. Just saw one again. I've done the show months ago on uh, talking about uh, noting all the movies, certain movies, the plethora of movies I've seen in my life, and cartoons and news articles which uh, emasculate men. So I've done my, the ministry's done its man show uh, a few months back. Uh, but I keep seeing them, and uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll make a note in my memory every time I see one, but I saw one again. So my, me and my... Uh, my two-and-a-half-year-old uh, girl, we're watching uh, one of her DVDs. Uh, this one is called Robots, a Pixar, you know, a thing. Robin Williams and a bunch of other stars did the voices, but it's a Pixar thing. It's called Robots. It came out in, like, 2004, 2005. Uh, it's kind of entertaining, parts of it. Um, she loves it, but I noticed... Uh, during the climactic fighting scene with the good robots, we're going to fight the bad robots. Uh, the Robin Williams robot uh, acted very heroic and uh, told his sister to stay put, you know, stay here. Uh, he told his sister, don't come around. We're going to, we men robots, we're going to go do the fighting and take care of business. And he, and he told his sister, you know, you're, you're the only thing I have that's good in this world. You stay here. And I thought, Wow. How unusual in our culture today to find a, a children's movie that sh shows men being men and the males being heroic. You don't see that anymore. Well, <laughs> they got me. I got my hopes up a little too soon because sure enough, 
five or ten minutes later, after the fight scene starts, uh, the uh, the good robots start getting their butts kicked, and just in the nick of time, what happens? The little sister shows up with a bunch of other robots uh, to to save the day and uh, and turn the tide in the fight scene. So the good guys won. So the little sister had to come and say, "Here we go again." It is so it's taboo in our culture to show men being heroic because they want to brainwash males in this culture to be docile, emasculated. And boy, they've done a good job. Boy, have they ever done a good job. Uh, but uh, sure enough, doggone, every single time. It's everywhere, folks. And if you aren't seeing it, you're blind. You're just blind. Men are just taking, having pot shots taken at them. Oh, just any movie that comes out, any popular magazine, any book that comes out, anything of discovery shows, pseudoscience specials, uh, comparing the genders. It's all, they're all hit pieces against men. Why? Again, because the oligarchs, who are males, they know the lowdown. They know that it's propaganda on all the mainstream disinformation, Satan's airwaves. And so they don't buy it. They don't read that crap, but they got us reading it. They got us common men watching it, and uh, they got you fooled. They got you emasculated. Anyway, yeah, yeah, just saw another one, and I'll probably see another one in the next week and so on. Uh I don't know that it's worth compiling them again and doing another show, but I um, I don't know. I wanted to let you know. So I saw another one. Okay, let's get into part 11 of The Babylonian Woe by David Astle. Now, these are the origins of these oligarchs that I was just talking about, the money changers. Okay. Sparta, the Pelinors, Wealth and women. Sparta, of all the Greek states, is one that resisted most of all in ancient times the encroachments of international money power and the circulation of precious metals and all those demoralizing factors deriving therefrom. However, from those laws promulgated by Lycurgus in Sparta, reputedly during the 9th century BC, but, as according to the archaeologists, the early 6th century B.C., it would seem that all those evils deriving from giving such international money power free reign had already been experienced and had brought about that reaction amongst the people generally that enabled Lycurgus to take those measures by which he expunged forever the main causes of the sickness of greed and self-interest which ate at the heart of the Doric overlord class of the Peloponnese. To him are ascribed those laws directed towards this purpose, such as are described by Plutarch, quote, Not contented with this redistribution of land, he resolved to make a division of their movables too, 
that there might be no odious distinction or inequality left among them. But finding it would be very dangerous to go about it openly, he took another course and defeated their avarice by the following stratagem. He commanded that all gold and silver coin should be called in, and that only a sort of money of iron should be current, a great weight and quantity of which was very little worth, so that to lay up twenty or thirty pounds there was required a pretty large closet, and to remove it nothing less than a yoke of oxen. With the diffusion of this money, at once a number of vices were banished from Lacedaemon, for who would rob another of such coin? Who would unjustly detain or take by force or accept as a bribe a thing which was not easy to hide or a credit to have, or indeed of any use to cut in pieces? For when it was red hot, they quenched it in vinegar, and by that means spoiled it and made it almost incapable of being worked. In the next place, he declared an outlawry of all superfluous arts. But here he might have spared his proclamation, for they of themselves would have gone after the gold and silver, the money which remained being not so proper payment for curious work. For being iron, it was scarcely potable. Neither, if they should take the means to export it, would it pass among other Greeks who ridiculed it. So now there was no means of purchasing foreign goods and small wares, no itinerant fortune-teller, no harlot-monger or gold or silversmith, engraver or jeweler set foot in a country which had no money, so that luxury deprived little by little of that which fed and fomented it, wasted to nothing, and died away of itself. For the rich had no advantage here over the poor, as their wealth and abundance had no road to come abroad by, but were shut up at home doing nothing." Unquote. Plutarch, of course, lived in a city and in an age when all wealth was assessed in terms of precious metals by weight. Needless to say, in order to have the cooperation of the real ruler, local money creative power, towards the publication of his works, he wisely followed that trend which undoubtedly had been instigated in Athens of making a mockery of Spartan customs, a trend which is still followed to this day by many so-called scholars. Sparta, early in the millennium, had come to understand the real significance of precious metal money as being part of an international confidence game. Sparta also realized the destructive forces inherent in the activities of its controllers and the foreign luxury traders they encouraged and financed in order to debilitate the people and so make absolute their own secret hegemony, such as destroyed all racial pride in that people on whom they were battening 
and thus destroying their will to resist through creating obsession with pleasure. The evidence is in the findings of the British school at Athens from their excavations at the site of the city of Sparta. Quote, the excavations of the British school at Athens at the site of the city of Sparta reveal a flourishing state of the arts and manufactures in Laconia carried on, if not wholly by Laconian workmen themselves, at least by foreign artists who were welcome and encouraged to ply their crafts without any of the dark suspicion of strangers that was so marked in latter times, unquote. The so-called Spartan way of life derived from the necessity of the Spartans to always be prepared for total war from abroad as their, you got to be kidding me, is this why we're told how horrible the Spartans were, how, how austere the Spartans were? They stood up to the international money power, so did they get smirched in history as a result of that? Did we? <laughs> wow. Uh, well, nothing surprising me anymore. Anyway, the so-called Spartan way of life derived from the necessity of the Spartans to always be prepared for total war from abroad as their final rejection of international money power made certain would come. Wow, oh, and to be always prepared for war from within, i.e. insurrection, an equal certainty deriving from the same causes. Holy mackerel. This is why the Spartans are so disparaged in our history classes, isn't it? Wow. The first, you know, it's, it's not the winners of wars that write the history books. It's the bankers, because the bankers are the real winners of the wars. The bankers and their Vatican bosses. The first Messenian War, 736 to 716 B.C., was entered into by King Theopompus of Sparta for the usual reasons for any war in a state indicated by archaeological findings as being under the thumb of international money power, instigation by that money power in favor of its arms industry and its other long-range purposes. The long, drawn-out character of the war indicated that the Messenians had equal access to international arms industry with Sparta. Armies are not raised and maintained in long, drawn-out wars without finances acceptable in international trade and ready access to the best of weapons and equipment. And it is clear the Messenians were not short of such. Another thing we're told in history, that the Spartans went on this aggressive war against the Messenians to deliberately enslave them. And I'm detecting that what David Assel's getting at is uh, the Spartans didn't have a choice. 
sounds like the Messinians were in the pay of the international bankers. And we're going to attack Sparta. Let's see. Uh, the first and second Messinian wars were followed by constitutional crises. Oh, let me back up. Uh, this war served that purpose most desirable to money power of reducing the power of kings. Quosh. The first and second Messinian wars were both followed by constitutional crises. The first settlement was a victory of the Spartan peers over the kings and a curbing of royal prerogatives and powers, unquote. Such would have been typical of the progress of international money power in its usual insidious takeover of any state or civilization. Quote, the crisis after the Second Messinian War was, at least, within the ranks of the Spartans themselves, a democratic one, if that very dubious word can be used, unquote. The long-drawn-out character of the Second Messinian War indicated the same underlying factor of the original War of Conquest, i.e. international money power, extending its favors to both sides, to the insurgents and to Sparta. The final edicts of Lycurgus, as a result of the constitutional crisis that followed the Second Messinian War, certainly indicate he was aware of the loss of sovereignty that came to any state that based its money system on the product of the international bullion brokers and which meant dependence on their good graces, the more especially if such state had no minds of its own. The Second Messinian War, which was doubtless to have established total, quote-unquote, democracy, that is, total rule of the international banking fraternity. <laughs> oh, so that's why... Bush Jr. and all the rest of them throw, throw around that word democracy, because according to David Astle, democracy means, let's hear this again, it means total rule of the international banking fraternity. Bingo. Okay. It failed so far as such purpose was concerned. Lycurgus's answer to a man who insisted he create a democracy in the state was, quote, first create a democracy in your own house, unquote. Certainly an apt answer. Wow, that's a great answer. What a great answer. Yeah, let your kids, let your children run the show. Let them have equal, let your wife have equal say and in everything. Good luck with that one. Good luck. Let your children... <laughs> that's there you go, democracy. The complaint of Theognis, admirer of Sparta, a visitor from Megara, whose political aim was directed towards the prevention of the recurrence of a tyranny at Megara, should not be forgotten, and bore light on the conditions at Sparta as well, and that gave rise to Lycurgus. Quote, Tradesmen reign supreme. The bad lord it over their betters. This is the lesson that all must thoroughly master. Unquote. 
of the reforms of Lycurgus, their cause, and those forces they were directed against, there is no doubt whatsoever and verification through the findings of archaeology, such as the work of Dr. Blakeway in Laconia, reestablishes the time as being, as remarked above, after the Second Messinian War, namely between 600 B.C. and 550 B.C., quote, he has demonstrated from archaeological evidence that between 600 B.C. and 550 B.C., foreign imports into Sparta practically ceased. Corinthian pottery, which had been common in Sparta in the early or proto-Corinthian period, is exceedingly rare after 600 B.C. Ivory, amber, Egyptian scarabs, and Phoenician goods likewise cease before 550 B.C., and the same is true of gold and silver jewelry, unquote. There is no doubt that early in the 6th century B.C., the Spartans totally excluded the international money market, such as controlled the rest of Greece through silver and gold money, and the bankers' practices relating thereto. So that's why the Athenians in our history books are painted as being uh, more virtuous than the Spartans, because the Athenians were in the pocket of the bankers, apparently. They also excluded for the Spartans also excluded foreign trade as being equally destructive of the order of life they wished to preserve. The notion created by Plutarch of that national currency of iron as being something ridiculous and requiring also an ox cart may be dismissed as part of the steady stream of propaganda no doubt being created in Athens against everything of ancient days, particularly the customs special to Sparta, if it is true that the Pelinors were of such weight as ruled out their being passed from hand to hand, then it may reasonably be assumed that they denoted wealth in much the same manner as the stone rings of Uat and the ancient Indus Valley civilization, more in the nature of a reserve, the circulating money being the leather notes referred to by Suidas as circulating in Lacedaemon, just as the circulating money of Uap with shell strings, similar to Tecaroro of the Gilbert Islands. It may equally have been a system whose origins were lost in remote ages, perhaps bearing relationship to that system existing in Europe during the 4th century B.C., when it is clear that the spondylus shell had greater significance than that ascribed to it as, quote, prestige possession, unquote, and was part of a worldwide use of shells as money. Sparta was indeed fortunate to possess considerable reserves of iron ore, 
the principal deposits being at the Melian Cape and the Canarian Promontory. Thus, both for her money and for her arms, she was therefore independent and needed no assistance from abroad. The laws of Lycurgus, excluding international money and trade, directly continued the formation of that warlike spirit and racial and national pride bred in the Spartans out of the trials of the long-drawn-out Messenian Wars, and which brought them in as saviors at Thermopylae, and indeed of Carthage at the end of the First Punic War, 255 B.C., when the army of Regulus encamped before the city was destroyed by Xantippus the Spartan. The very fact that the power of the kings had been undermined by the First Messenian War, although their position as absolute leaders of the people in war still existed, became a blessing in disguise. History has shown that the point to which international money power immediately gravitates when penetrating any people living in natural order is the top, the king himself, either directly or through the priesthood. Given his sanction and connivance in respect to their schemes, then peoples whose very souls have leaned towards the king as to the Lord's anointed are easily subdued and their minds filled with arithmetical calculations and obsession with their animal needs instead of that great glory of a oneness with the deity, a oneness with the harmony of the universe and their being lords of their own world with dominion over all other life. One of the first steps of such money power towards total assumption of rule has been the eradication of kings and kingly power. Even though a king might be led into connivance with the banker's schemes through lack of understanding, he always could still awaken and discover his mistake and realizing the sword was still in his hand, take measures to regain his prerogative. Therefore, he had to be disposed of or reduced to a paid and willing servant. In Sparta, there seems to have been another obstacle to the promoters of that phony democracy advocated by international money power, namely the Ephorati, whose existence was undoubtedly linked to that national money power of Sparta as instituted or reinstituted under the protection of Lycurgus. Of the ephors, it may be said, their main objectives were, quote, first, the maintenance of home defense and limiting of Spartan dominion to Messenia and Laconia, i.e., no imperial entanglements. Second, the fostering of a steady policy which led to intervention in the struggle at Athens with the Pesistratids and the expulsion of the family. 
Third, an unrelenting hostility to the pretensions of royal power in the state, unquote. Quote, the Ephorate was a profoundly democratic institution that feared and fought against tyranny both within and without the borders of Lacedaemon, unquote. Accepting the tyrant as frontman of those alien agents of international money power, the trapezite, in which category the Pacistratids certainly fell, then the meaning of the policies of the Ephorate becomes clear. With the limiting of Spartan dominion to Messenia and Laconia was the establishment of an area from which Spartans could derive total economic freedom sufficient to maintain themselves and that which, above all, maintained their way of life and its source, their national monetary system. The intervention at Athens and the total opposition to the Pesistratids was obvious policy in view of the unrelenting pressure of Athenian money power as a branch of international money power against Sparta, city that had made mockery of the power of the counting houses of the world financial centers and had set up example in the world which would become inspiration to others. The hostility to kingly power by the Ephorates would be guided by what they doubtless saw was the need, if their national life was to be maintained, of making sure that kings in no way had the power to surrender themselves and the people they represented to the blandishments of international money power, whose opportunity, alas, has always been a weak and ill-instructed king. However, the remark of Archidamos, king of Sparta, at the commencement of the quote-unquote great Peloponnesian War reveals, even at that day, 428 BC, how the corruptive forces outpouring from Babylonia with its immediate agents had certainly re-entered Sparta to some degree, quote, and war is not so much a matter of armaments as of the money that makes armaments effective, unquote. In his speech to his own people, Archidamos also warns them of the 6,000 talents war chest supposedly held by the Athenians in the Acropolis. Both of these statements show no understanding of that in which a king should above all be instructed national monetary emission and prove how right were the ephors in the controls with which they surrounded kingship. Archidamos privately was close friend of Pericles, scion of the Alcmeonidae, whose destiny, Greek history shows, to have always been closely linked to that of international money power. 
During the period when the national currency of Sparta maintained its integrity, it might be safe to say that the Spartan, insofar as it is possible for true freedom to exist, was a free man. You guys hear that? David Astle tells you Spartans were free. In our history book, we're told that Spartans were under a totalitarian regime, and it was the Athenians who were free. The Athenians had the democracy, quote-unquote democracy, and the Spartans had what the ancient reflection of communism, or whatever it was. And David Astle says it was completely the opposite. Far out, man. <laughs> Seriously. Everything, everything, every shred of news or information you get from a mainstream source, cut it up, throw it away, or stand it on its head if you want to have any semblance of truth out of it at all. Cut it up, throw it away, don't even listen to it. Or just flip it on its head and understand that the reverse is true if it's a mainstream news source. Oh, man. Yeah, I was talking to a guy today, a friend of mine, who doesn't get it at all, doesn't understand the world at all. And uh, we were talking about uh, ancient societies and their health problems they used to have. And he, he made some comment, yeah, the, they didn't used to have the pharmaceuticals to keep them healthy. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, what do you tell a guy like that? I certainly don't know. <laughs> uh, and I, I've tried once before on a different topic, and he just, just shut down, <laughs> just blank stare. Uh, so I'm not going to try again. Let him find out the hard way. Okay, back to the book. Uh, so, the Spartans were free. Far out. Okay, indeed, the Helots were more than likely more free by a long way than are the laboring classes of this day. The Spartans were more free than you, buddy. You common American, average Joe Sixpack, and you're told that the Spartans were slaves to their system. <laughs> you're the slave American. And certainly more free than those classes of the semi-mass production lines of the other Greek cities. Wow! Whose monetary systems were almost all whether fiduciary and of state issue or not, at the mercy of, this, of the bankers, that would include Athens, and we're told of the heroism, the freedom in Athens. It's all lies. And therefore, the manipulators of the value of bullion and slaves, wherever it was, they maintained their center, generally assumed to be, you guessed it, Babylonia, and its outposts, Lydia, and Nocritus in the Nile Delta, and Phoenicia, and Athens, and Syzicus, and Colchis, and many other cities in key positions to trade with the world beyond. Um, I'm quite confident that I'm butchering some of the 
pronunciations of some of these ancient cities, and uh, I'm also quite confident that Dwight the Bright, who uh, I'm sure is listening, hello Dwight, I'm sh- pretty sure you know the proper pronunciation to these words, and you're probably cringing every time I do it, right? <laughs> I'm doing my best. Uh, I, I was educated in public school. I'm still, tr- I'll, for the rest of my life, I'll be trying to, Overcome that, compensate for that. Here we go. A monetary system, simple, inviting neither peddlers of luxury, panderers, or pornographers to make mockery of the lives of the people, issued and regulated by a benevolent state, and undoubtedly with its units paid into circulation with care and attention to the results on the national well-being and strength, bred a sturdy, independent people, completely contemptuous of the gold madness raging elsewhere. They were an example by which other great peoples came to profit, outstandingly the Romans. They lived with a feeling of great superiority to the Athenians, who, while having a plentiful currency, except during the periods of exhaustion of the Lorian silver mines, were exposed to all the evils of control over their political life by alien money power through the trapezite. There you have it, folks. It was the Athenians who were enslaved, not the Spartans. History gives much information about the means whereby money was collected and raised and spent, but nothing as to those shadowy figures who institute its units in the first place, and, as in the case of the bankers' quote-unquote democracies, inject them into the circulation. As to when international money power re-entered Sparta, there is little enough evidence. But the outlook of King Archidamos suggested it had made quite some progress by the date of the commencement of the Peloponnesian War, and it may be safely said that to win that war, out of which could come nothing but gain to international money power, Sparta had to make almost total concession. The final victory over Athens and her empire, which ended the war, achieved the purposes of the international bullion and slave traders as surely as final defeat would so have done. As it will be remembered, the relaxation and luxury that inundated Rome after the Second Punic War as a result of the concessions that had been made to international bullion and slave traders in order to be able to rearm after Cannae and ultimately drive Hannibal out of Italy and defeat him in his own territory, within 25 years, dragged the Romans down to a debauched, money-mad mob, though still mighty, 
through the employment at arms of the defeated peoples. Similarly, after the Peloponnesian War, like causes had done the same for Sparta. And it was but 25 years later, in 371 BC, the Spartan phalanx, softened to the core, crumbled into bloody ruin at Leuctra to Epimondas, the Theban, and never again recovered the Elan that had made it the victor of a hundred battles. For the Spartans now, more than any, were consumed by the corrupting diseases of money madness and its attendant liberalism. That by 360 BC, the ancient money system that had been the factor behind the morale of the Spartan of Thermopylae was little more than a memory, is revealed by the following quotation taken from Alexander Del Mar, quote, The crime of Gylippus, B.C. 360, and the decree offered upon its exposure vis-a-vis -vis that no coin of gold or silver be admitted into Sparta, but that they should use the money that had formerly obtained shows that as this decay of the state and weakening of credit went on, gold or silver coins at or near their bullion value gradually crept into circulation as money. The failure of the decree to pass is conclusive that the iron numerical system was no longer practicable, unquote. In other words, the damage to that which had been Sparta and its people, done by the ruler who first of all turned a blind eye to dealings in the precious metals, the regrowth of international trade, and no doubt the holdings of deposits in Athenian banks, and who failed to deal with ferocity with those who interfered with the Pelinors, either by counterfeiting or speculation, was irreparable. It seemed this time the clock could not be turned back. Okay, folks, uh, we're at the halfway point, uh, just about, maybe a little more so. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll come back after the break with uh, the rest of Part 11 of The Babylonian Woe by David Astle. All right, we are back. Let's finish up with uh, part 11 of The Babylonian Woe by David Astle. Thus, while Sparta finally collapsed before the unremitting pressure of the Athenian, or better put, the international money market, seeming to yield its ancient strength and the sources of its independence, the Athens that carried on as well, partly for reasons as elsewhere given, was but a shadow of itself with the approach of the exhaustion of the mines, and thence the failure of the base of its money power and the quote-unquote confidence 
essential to its maintenance. Moreover, still in the hands of the bankers as a center of trade for trade's sake, Athens was become but a name. As with Rome, by the time of the civil wars, its original people had disappeared into that mass of freed slaves and immigrants from elsewhere, the quote-unquote sojourners, who were now a large part of the Athenian population and for whose leaders Xenophon, the journalist, obviously fronted when he proposed that special taxes should be lifted from foreigners who at the same time were not required to do military service. Parenthesis. Here, it might be remarked that it is perhaps unfortunate that should still survive the writings of a paid propagandist, so similar to the writings of some of his brethren today, when so little remains of Greek literature relative to the total output, end parenthesis. Of Spartan money as reinstituted under the patronage of Lycurgus, Ernest Babylon, famous French numismatist of the 19th century, wrote, quote, A long time after the use of money had been spread throughout the Hellenic world, Sparta continued, as through tradition, to make use of ingots of iron as a means of exchange. These bars were known under the description of gâteau de passere. Each one weighed an agenetic mina, and to carry only six of them, that is to say about 536 kilograms, a wagon drawn by two oxen was required. This information supplied to us by Xenophon and Plutarch agrees with that from central Italy, where cumbersome bars of bronze were carried in carts. Ice, grave, plostrous, quidem convihentes, said Titus Vivius. All kinds of stories circulated on the subject of the famous Pelinors of Sparta that seemed to have remained in use until the Persian Wars. It was said, for instance, that the iron used in the manufacture of this money was unsuitable for any other purpose and was rendered brittle by an operation consisting of heating it until red-hot, then quenching it in vinegar. In the conservative capital of Laconia, it appears that these ingots of iron were the sole money in use and all citizens were forbidden under penalty of death to possess any other money. When Epimonides died, he was so poor that nothing was found in his house in the way of wealth other than an old iron. At Thebes, the native land of Epimonides, where money was known and struck at an early date, found in the residence of the hero could have no more than a superstitious character, unquote. This surprises us less, especially as since the 7th century, Phaedon, king of Argos, 
when he struck the first silver money of Achina and introduced a standard system of weights and measures into the Peloponnese, withdrew the former iron spits from circulation that had served as money until then, and consecrated a certain number of samples, quote-unquote, in ex voto, in the sanctuary of Hera at Argos. At the time of Aristotle, they could still be seen in the temple. Babylon, most learned scholar as he was, this is Ernest Babylon, however, reflects the complacent attitude of the bankers at the end of the last century, which was founded on the idea, such had been their luck during the previous century, that their millennium had finally come. With him, money was precious metal, and precious metal was money. Although of interest, his information a repetition of Xenophon, the journalist, and Plutarch offers not much more light. Though over 2,000 years had gone by, precious metal money and its promoters still ruled, despite a dozen great kingdoms and empires having risen at its behest and having fallen at its behest. Did Babylon see the shadow which lurked behind the throne? He closed his eyes and turned his head away. Lycurgus was without doubt inspired to re-establish this national monetary system by the clear understanding he must have come to have of the evil effects of this gold and silver madness and its disastrous effects as a result of the operations of the trapezite, or bankers, relative to the destruction of national morale and being. Precious metal coinage was currency whose total circulation the state could in no way control because of the desirability of its material internationally. In the common money market of the silver bullion brokers, it was material which, whether minted into money by state authority or otherwise, produced a money always of value regardless of local convention. Its value was dictated by the arbitrary decision of that international fraternity who controlled its mining and the slaves that mined it and out of manipulation of that pyramid of abstract money they created thereon, controlled the political affairs of states. The money that had been established in Sparta was of value to Spartans alone. Although no record exists of such matter, it may be safely assumed that the Pelinors and the leather multiples or divisibles of suides entered the circulation as against state indebtedness, thus reducing taxation, that vicious destroyer of peoples, to relatively negligible amounts. 
their pitted and otherwise worthless appearance deriving from their being immersed in vinegar when red hot made them of no value for any other purpose than that for which they were intended. The use of this national money was the force that gave Sparta the leadership of Hellas until the end of the Peloponnesian War, even if decline had commenced with the execution of the great general Pausanias by the ephors in 479 B.C., and was that which necessarily dictated the policy of the extirpation of the tyrannies, the tyrant always being representative for the agent of international money-creative power through precious metal control. There might be temptation to assume the Pelinors were a system of quote-unquote iron greenbacks, but while they resembled the quote-unquote greenbacks in this, that they were the total will to be of the Spartans, assuming the truth of their great weight, as pointed out above, they may have been more in the character of that monetary system of very ancient days of which the stone rings of Uap are a last remaining evincement. A healthy, wholesome people who controlled totally their state and existence would have little reason to accumulate money fortunes and wealth as distinct from the land which was their patrimony. And as such, money fortunes begin and end as little more than figures in the banker's ledger nor could they be guided into becoming mouthpieces for the policies of the bankers. Meals were eaten in common amongst men, as in Carthage of earlier days, and a genuine contempt for luxury existed. A simple life was not sought after so much as it came of its own accord as a natural outcome of such monetary system created for their better and right living, and which preserved them from the encroachments of that liberalizing, demoralizing, and debt-creating force of international trade, and its destructive effect on the esprit de corps of any particular race or people who are foolish enough to permit its proponents to have their way. Although it was said of the early days of the laws of Lycurgus and his monetary reforms that precious metals seized in war were deposited with the Arcadians, of later days Augustus Beck wrote of gold and silver in Sparta, quote, Sparta, during a period of several generations, swallowed up large quantities of the precious metals, as in Aesop's fables, the footsteps of the animals which went in were to be seen, but never of those which came out. The principal cause of this stagnation was that the state kept the gold and silver in store, 
and only reissued them for war and foreign enterprise, although there were instances of individuals who amassed treasures according to the law, unquote. Xenophon stated that Lycurgus made the privilege of citizenship equally available to all who observed what was enjoined by laws without taking any account of weakness of body or scantiness of means, which would mean that no Spartan suffered in respect to the mess or scission to which he was entitled to belong on account of economic condition. Xenophon had lived in Sparta and was writing before the loss of Messenia. Aristotle, who declared failure to pay dues, entailed political disenfranchisement, wrote after the loss of Messenia in 370 BC, and a certain penetration by the bankers of the Piraeus, and the assumption of control of Spartan fiscal affairs, which it may be safely said, they were already conceded by an already corrupted Sparta, ready to accept any humiliation to save itself from total ruin. The final military collapse at Leuctra rose from that weakened condition that followed the apparent victory of the quote-unquote great Peloponnesian War and those concessions that already would have been made to the international bankers, now in the Persian court, as a result of the desperate need of the Spartans for ships. The loan of 5,000 talents towards the building of ships, which was granted to Sparta by Persia as a result of the Treaty of Miletus, 412 BC, would not have been granted without major concessions being exacted, most likely abrogation of those Spartan edicts forbidding the sojourn of foreign traders, etc., on Spartan territory. It would not take long, once such traders had been admitted, for them to undermine the morale of that which had been Sparta by spreading the money madness and the promotion of luxury and the creation of unnatural concern with sex and body needs. You guys hear that? According to David Astle, when a society runs rampant with promiscuity and obsession with sex, David Astle tells you that it's the bankers, the money traders that are responsible for so doing that to your society. That's fascinating. Well, after all, Jesus said, the love of money, the root of all evil. Not just some, but all. Back to the book. Of this situation, Polybius, as quoted by Humphrey Mitchell, wrote the following, quote, As long as they aspired to rule over their neighbors, 
or over the Peloponnesians alone, they found the supplies and resources furnished by Laconia itself adequate as they had all they required ready to hand and quickly returned home, whether by land or by sea. But once they began to undertake naval expeditions and to make military campaigns outside the Peloponnese, it was evident that neither their iron currency nor the exchange of their crops for commodities which they lacked, as permitted by the laws of Lycurgus, would suffice for their needs. These enterprises demanded a currency in universal circulation and supplies drawn from abroad, and so they were compelled to beg from the Persians to impose tribute on the islanders and exact taxes from all the Greeks. For they recognized that under the legislation of Lycurgus, it was impossible to aspire. I will not say to supremacy in Greece, but to any position of influence, unquote. The fact is, however, Sparta, while following the laws of Lycurgus, had dominated Greece in more or less degree. As soon as she lost sight of the meaning and purpose of such laws, she became just another petty state, an agency for the subterranean control by international banking through manipulation of the silver and gold bullion basis of her currency. Each man, concerned with his own need and greed, aimlessly following the pretty bubble which was the illusion of the banker's quote-unquote wealth. The old order, and that which had given them strength and national morale, was soon destroyed through the promotion of foreigners and the lower castes and the helots who merely took the name but not the meaning. Also, by the stirring up of women, here we go, here we go, by the stirring up of women towards rejection of their subordinate place in life, just as in America, and if you, in the Christian biblical position in life, it's not really subordinate. And therefore, instituting insidious attack on the natural order of the home. There it is. That's what they've done in America. And that's what they've done to the women. That's what they did to the women in Greece. And they've done it now to the women in America. Out of which is bred the natural order of life itself. The order of the home. Wow. History repeats. The money changers use the same tactics over and over. The later age of Aristotle, with its hard and realistic facts as referred to by some writers, was no more realistic than the earlier age of Xenophon. Rather, it was less so. It was the age of the triumph of those international interests whose arming and instigation of the Messenian helots in an earlier age had decided Spartans to accept that structure of law as advocated by Lycurgus 
which meant surrender of so much ease of living, rather than become the same as most other Greek states, an alien money manipulator's paradise, with, as Theognis of Megara put it, quote, tradesmen reigning supreme, and the bad lording it over their betters, unquote. As the earliest finds of the clay facsimiles of precious metal coinage at Athens seem to date around the middle of the 5th century B.C., it may be assumed that one way or the other, either through Spartans permitted to reside at Athens or through those Spartan mercenaries who traveled the world seeking employment for their skill at arms, the lust for having one man more than his neighbor slowly became injected into them. Perhaps Spartan mercenaries, who always required to be paid in those international currencies of silver and gold, returning from abroad via Athens, had been inveigled into depositing their pay in such gold or silver with the bankers of the Piraeus, with whom it might, quote-unquote, grow from interest, taking home the baked clay coins as evidence of their account and thus evading contravention of the Spartan laws in respect to possession of gold and silver. With the resumption of the rule of international money power in later Spartan history, one of the most outstanding instances of that sickness rotting the fibers of their racial morale was the tale of those hoimoioi who seemed to have fallen in the social scale and were no longer able to take their places in those great messes, the secessionists, the breeding places of that esprit de corps that was Sparta. Scholars give various reasons for these quote-unquote disenfranchised Spartans, apparently known as the Hypomaeonists. The reason for their coming to be is, however, more than clear. They are the direct result of the power to discriminate, which is the natural outcome in favor of the banker and that actual God power he exercises once installed as local money creator. More than likely, after the Peloponnesian War, and certainly after the Battle of Leuctra in 371 BC, the reestablished bankers, following usual policy, would have taken care that certain families, who this cast of men instinctively realized might yet create opposition to them, were dispossessed by one means or another. With that banker-created money as being now the necessary qualification for membership to the secessionists, it was a small matter to make sure that such persons whose disenfranchisement they planned never had enough. 
Clearly, in such later day, the secession or mess charges being assessed in silver money, whose issue the bankers controlled, those to whom such alien bankers extended no favors, and therefore ultimately dispossessed through mortgage and foreclosure, not having any longer the wherewithal to pay, no longer belonged. Further, seeing their former helots raised up to a place of honor and riches by bankers' created wealth, and certainly by the reign of King Cleomenes III, 228 to 219 BC, actually sitting in their place in the secession, little desire to retrieve such a distinctly lost cause remained. The Spartan, whether poor or whether rich in land, in the days of the national currency, had been the social equal of any other Spartan. However, as much as anything, the slow decay of the Spartan principle derived from a most outstanding omission in the Constitution, which was total lack of provision for the redistribution of wealth at certain definite intervals and the cancellation of debt, as in the Hebrew custom of the 49th year. Yeah, the Jubilee year. Right on. We need that. Boy, do we ever need that in America. <clears throat> Needless to say, even in the days of the national currency, there must have been tendency towards economic inequality resulting from such omission. But the rapid increase of such economic inequality after the return of the bankers that certainly followed the quote-unquote great Peloponnesian War, additional to furthering the breakup of the caste system that previously had obtained in Sparta in some degree, and wherein each man had known his place in the order of society, also caused a further breakup in the natural order of life of Spartan man as master of home and family. You can say the same thing about the emasculated, indebted, beleaguered American man. Now, in that Spartan society wherein women had always known considerable freedom relative, say, to their Athenian sisters, the control of wealth, <laughs> by the way, that's the opposite of what we get in our mainstream history books again. David Astle claims that uh, women had con considerable freedom, especially relative to their Athenian, to the women in Athens we get the complete opposite story in uh, mainstream history books. Women were subjugated. They were enslaved. Okay, right. And, uh, well, that's propaganda for you. That's the mainstream devil's disinformation grid. Back to the book. In that Spartan society wherein women had always freedom compared to Athens, uh, the control of wealth, however designated, passed substantially 
into the hands of women. You hear that? Women in Sparta had money, they had rights, they had property. This is far out. Concern for the growth of quote-unquote money, no doubt, just as in this day, replaced care for their men and concern for themselves as mothers of the race and concern for the growth of their children. Yeah, so when, so when money becomes more important, even women lose the concern for their husbands and even the concern for their children. Okay, uh, quote, Two-fifths of the land and wealth had come into their hands, simply because lack of men left them heiresses, and this wealth they used extravagantly, maintaining racehorses which they exhibited at the Olympic Games, costly equipages and fine clothes. They meddled in the affairs of state and brought undue influence upon the conduct of the government, unquote. Further proof that women were not intended by our Lord to be involved in government. In such society, this stratum of wealthy women have no respect for men as such too often. Can you say hello, modern America, modern American woman? Well, perhaps not classified as hetere, who all said and done, had served some useful purpose to men, they clearly lived public lives very much the same as the hetere. Such, boy, here we go. Last paragraph for this installment. And uh, sounds like, looks like he's going to be describing American women, although it's Spartan women he's referring to. Such women, their heads full of figures and pride, would have served most usefully those alien money powers who ever have... This is... i got to pause here again. If you've ever seen that movie, uh, From Freedom to Fascism, and the maker of the movie... Oh, I forget the guy's name. Uh, but anyway, he was quoting from a acquaintance of his who was a member of the Rockefeller clan, and this member of the Rockefeller clan told him, hey, you, the American public, we, we sold them a bill of goods, we told them that uh, feminism was about women's rights, and he laughed and said, that wasn't it at all. Feminism, getting women out in the workplace, competing with men, all that was about was profit, were profits. It was about tax, being able to tax the other 50% of the population. And now David Astle writes that it worked the same in Sparta. That when women got their heads full of figures and pride and got involved in the government and had no respect for their husbands and, and a diminished concern for their families, their own children, he said, in Sparta, these women served most usefully those alien money powers, same as the American women today, whoever have sought to further their purposes through corrupt and malleable persons. Women rarely corrupt 
in the sense that a man may be corrupt because of their natural need to shelter behind what seems to be strength, as arrogant money power would appear to them, are malleable. David Astle's telling you, women, and that's true. I've seen it myself, and I've talked to people who would agree with me. I know I've had conversations. Women, they naturally have this need for security, and that's why women marry up, that whole thing. They have this built-in need for security. Women do. Men don't have that. They have other things. And so, but that does make women more malleable to alien money powers, to the uh, money changers. Their own Spartan men, either dead, and if not dead, completely confused with the new liberalization program, just as in America today, American men are completely confused and hooked on porn and emasculated by all the pop culture movies they're watching, uh, completely confused are the men with new liberalization, the new liberalization program of the returned bankers. The Spartan men were virtually enslaved, just like American men today. Therefore, the Spartan men, uh, the Spartan women turned for the protection they needed to what seemed to be the new strength, pudgy and gross, though it may have been. What men does that ever describe American women today? It describes the whole situation of American men today, too. This is eerie, eerie, just uncanny. Anyway, folks, uh, that was part 11 of The Babylonian Woe by David Astle from 1975. Good luck finding this one again in your local mainstream bookstore. I mean, it's hard enough finding it online. It's it's downloadable online, but, uh, boy, in, in hardcover, it, actual binding, I, I don't know that you can find this anymore, maybe, but it wouldn't be easy. You're not supposed to know this stuff. You're not supposed to read books like this, which is why I'm reading it to you, all four or five of you out there who are listening to this. Anyway, uh, I'm Gordon Comstock. This has been the Ministry of Truth. Over and out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That is, you have, man, how long have you worked on that? Well, view view of current uh, the current situation that we find ourselves in in America in the world that I'm I'm aware of is just filled chuck filled with stuff that you will not find anywhere else that I that I'm aware of, and I've uh, I've listened to many of his calls and uh, even had. I think I had one on uh, restoring America back a few months ago. You did one, I think, with a fellow named Paul. I can't remember his last name, but it was so good. I just, I, I put it on the call. It was really good. So, uh, I, I appreciate so much for you coming and sharing with us. And just, I want you to just uh, share your heart with us tonight. Share whatever's on your heart about uh, history or about America or about. Uh, uh, whatever you would like to talk about, Keith, I, I just appreciate you coming. His website is 
thinkorbebeaten.com, and it's just filled with uh, incredible information. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking through that again tonight. I don't know. Has anybody ever listened to all of that, Keith? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> uh, that is, you have, man, how long have you worked on that? Well, uh, Michoud, who was in the uh, chat room, uh, otherwise known as Kelly, is the webmaster, and that's his endeavor. He took it over for uh, a woman by the name of Angie Riddell, who uh, had my first websites uh, like com and Beyond the Grass, you know, and she died suddenly in her sleep and really left everything up in the air. So one of the things that uh, Kelly had volunteered to do uh, was to try to resurrect as much information that she had compiled uh, from what I had done. And then we took it from there. Um, I've, you know, I've been at this since 2002. And, um, you know, there's a lot of audio hours for sure. Um, so that's really what it comes down to. Uh, trying, in fact, lately, uh, Kelly's been trying to uh, get all the, the audios I can find that I've done. And I handed them over to him. And he'll, he'll lay more in as, as the time goes by. Um, you know, I mean, the cornerstone for all this to be honest with you, that was really near the end um, when I, I had a chance to uh, interview the informer and James Montgomery. Um, those are the two that pretty much nailed everything down for me with regard to the reality of, of America and uh, what we can hope for, if you will. So, uh, but, but Kelly's the one that, that does the, you know, the wet work and the, and the hard stuff. It's easy to get in front of a microphone and bloviate for an hour, so <laughs> I have to hand it to him. Plus, well, you're, you're really good. I mean, you're a really good presenter and uh, interviewer. You do a really good job when you talk to people. Well, when this first began, the reason why we did a half-an-hour show on Pirate Radio, myself and a, and a gentleman by the name of Harry Spencer, who had just come off the AM, two AM stations uh, in the local uh, uh, Dade City which isn't near Miami, it's, it's up in West Central Florida. And we got together and decided to do a half an hour tape show. And we did that for, I guess, about a year, a little bit more. And then he kind of, um, I guess, lost the interest in it. But then I took the show to um, the AM stations where he had come from and did that for a number of years. And I started having guests on a lot of them that were on GCN and other places because for the most part, you know, especially when it came to Alex Jones, I mean, the person could hardly talk. So I decided to let somebody come on and let them have their say. Uh, I wasn't interested necessarily in anything I had to say. It was just that I tried to facilitate the interview as best I can, and it worked out pretty well. But there came a time when I realized that something was still not right, that I'm sorry to say, but even the Patriots believe in the same mythos that the masses do whom they ridicule and it's so i mean really they're in the same boat it's not very popular to say this but i i have to tell you it's the truth and, and that's where i man and montgomery brought me that was the last step i mean after that everything else was denouement so um it, you know, yeah i mean interviewing um i try to let the other person talk i mean that was what you're not there to listen to me and that people appreciate it, and it worked out really well for years and years and years. It's just that I realized that some of the information coming from these people wasn't really eh, all that correct. Yeah. So, 
I just I had to leave it because it wasn't where it was at. So, uh, it sounds like you have your path is a lot like mine and and a lot of people that that are in this path that we start. I mean, something kind of shocks us or wakes us up, and then we start looking outside of Rush Limbaugh and you know those idiots and and. We go to Alex Jones, you know, and Alex Jones, you listen to, I listen to Alex Jones probably for two years, I guess. <laughs> and it's just like, it just drives you crazy because there's not, never anything. It's, it's just a cycle, a circle, you know. And it sounds like you've kind of been on that same path. The question I was going to ask you is what, what was it, when, at what point in your life did you kind of, wake up to man something is not right with the yeah. with the normal picture uh the whole thing started with hearing things from adults this goes back to the 50s uh, and I, I may mention this before i mean adults treat children like they don't really listen to what you're talking about but they do so sometimes what they say is a little bit surprising and they think you're not catching it. But I was, you know, I would be in the company of World War II vets or Korean vets. Uh, my father was a veteran of both. And I would hear stuff that they would say, especially after they got a few under their belt, because a lot of times he'd take me to his softball games, he went back to the bar after. And then after a couple, you know, you, you know it, people started to loosen up a little bit. And, it, you know, it didn't really mean all that much to me, but it just stuck with me. And then as time went on, I mean, I had a, I, we called him my uncle. He really was my uncle. He's my father's first cousin. I mean, this guy was in the OSS before he became the CIA. And I remember him saying things at Christmas time when we all used to come over for the annual, you know, fest. And he'd get a few in him, and he'd say, you know, what we did was treasonous. It was treason. And I'm like, Mom, what's treason, you know? Uh, but I never forgot that either. So I, he was one of the OSS that didn't make it over into the CIA. He went into private investigation work. Uh, but I never. I, I asked. I asked my sister, who was also present at that. She's the only one living now from those days, besides myself. And I asked her, and she can't remember, you know, what it was all about either, because so many years have gone by. But anyway, and then I go through. I go through high school, grammar school, element, uh, junior high school, and high school. And I mean, we had this war that started in 1960. It used to be all about Laos, and then it turned into Vietnam. And then you wonder why in the world this war won't end. And then you guys come back from Vietnam who were, in, who were in the neighborhood. You know, we used to play basketball at the school yard. And when they came back, we were like, you know, oh, thank you for your service and all this. And they, they looked at us and said, hey, man, whatever you do, do not go. Don't go. And they told us what it was like. And a lot of these guys, in fact, pretty much all of them, came back for a short time and just could not fit in, and we never saw them again. And that really left a lot of us cold. So, and then as time went on, I'd run into these people and just have these haphazard conversations and guys telling me about, you know, World War II is a bunch of crap. It was all about money. Well, that's a surprise. You know, and then you ask questions when you're in high school, like, how come, uh, how come lobbyists aren't called, uh, aren't, uh, what they do, isn't that called bribery? Oh, no, you've got to understand. Uh, I don't understand. Why are they paying politicians to do things? You know what I mean? And you take this stuff in, and after a while, it's like, you know what? This really stinks, and, and could my worst apprehensions be true? And then I, I, I at night, let's see, in, in 2000, 
Honestly, I caught Alex Jones on a Saturday. My wife and I were tooling around. It was probably late August 2000. And I heard him, and I thought he was a little wacky. But I kept listening because some of this stuff made sense to me. Um, and then I just said, you know what? I got to find out before I die what in the world is going on and whether we've been fed a major bag of uh, doo-doo. And that's how it started. So I, in 2002, I started my own thing with Harry, as I said, and went on from there. Um, and even now at the end, to wrap this whole thing up, uh, Gordon and myself and Eric the Blacksmith got into suppressed history going back in time for accounts of what was going on back then and how the mainstream account was baloney and how good people wrote books, were good at what they did, they were excellent journalists, and they just got you know, what they call privileged. You know, they either bought the book out and, and burned it, or they just couldn't get themselves uh, you know, on the bookstores, on the shelves. So we go back and get that, and really, thank goodness for archive.org, because there is a treasure trove of books there uh, that support just what we're talking about. Uh, you had somebody on the other day, I didn't listen, um, about the Lusitania. And I had come upon a book called The Lusitania, written in 1972, and what a story that tells about Wilson in the United States and Churchill in England and making the Germans, frankly, look like bad guys when they were, they were playing by the rules, but the others weren't. So this is the kind of thing that happens. And then you realize government is, it's just, government is always bad. It's just some are worse than others. And as you all well know, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, I mean, human government can only tend to corrupt, and it will never be any better because no one's going to, I mean, in any kind of unanimity, you're not going to get people accepting Jesus Christ. So there's always going to be problems. But we understand that this is a sin-cursed earth. We do the best we can. But governments promote themselves as being advocates, but in essence, they're adversaries. And I think it's getting much worse now, and it's less pretense, because we're nearing some kind of epoch uh, where, let's put it, the man behind the curtain is going to step outside and take the mask off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think all of us are feeling that's pretty deep in our gut, you know, that that's what's going on. Yeah. So what do you think about this, that most of the history, you have it on your side, most of this history that has been just, it's been rewritten almost or written out. I mean, it's like they just omit stuff or suppress stuff. Well, if you go back before 1900, it's like the history is almost, it's totally different, you know? What do you think about that? Well, I'll give you an example. I had always heard uh, some rumors, not that it happened all that often, that uh, the Russian fleets came to the United States during the Civil War. And before the Internet, uh, it was really difficult. And even when the Internet first began, uh, I, I would ask, you know, I'd go into some kind of like Russian chat room and ask anybody if they had that in their history. And when someone would say, yeah, you did, but, you know, they couldn't really remember. So um, I finally found something from a, a California Historical Quarterly from 1949. And it, it talked about how the Russians' Atlantic fleet, Atlantic fleet went to New York their uh, Pacific fleet went to San Francisco. Now, after that, I go take a look at another great site called chroniclingamerica.loc.gov. 
It has digitized newspapers. Some of them go back to the 18th century. So I looked at the New York Tribune in October of 1863 to see if anything was mentioned about the Russians. <laughs> sure enough, there it was, front page, to our Russian visitors. They gave them a parade down Fifth Avenue. Now, how did that never get into our history books that the czar, and, and listen, there's a lot of intrigue about why this happened, but why didn't that get into our history books? The Russians were here and willing to aid us um, because they thought that Britain or France might make a move on this country now riven in two by the Civil War. Why it makes sense is that the Russians had just been beaten by the British and the French in the first time that they were allies ever, dig that, in the Crimean War, and that was like 1856. So the Russians were all up for a rematch, and they wanted to get their ships out of their cold water ports, which was always a problem for them, before the winter came in, because they could beat both the French and the British on the high seas. But if they got caught in harbor, uh, Britain would have destroyed whatever they could. So in doing that, bringing them out, they were given notice to Britain and France that, you know, we, we can't have another rematch whenever you'd like. Great yeah. stuff, but not a, not a whisper in our history book. It is really amazing what, what has been omitted, you know, and you try to figure out like that. Well, why would they, why? Why would they do that? You know, I guess because they've set Russia up as the big bad bear, you know, whatever. You Probably, know. yeah. Um, and yet we were, yet we were allies in World War II. <laughs> it's like unbelievable how they, how they turn and then they, they manipulate, they, it's like they think people forget 20 years ago, you know, almost. I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you, here's another interesting thing. Um, in looking up, uh, about something in the First World War, I believe it was 1950, and I probably can call it up uh, as we speak, but I had to laugh because we weren't yet in World War I, and there were pieces in the paper about our, um, what might be what they called our brown enemy. They meant the, the Japanese. So here we aren't even in World War I yet, and newspapers are banging the jingoistic drum about, well, you know, these Japanese, you know, we might have to duke with them sooner or later. I'm like, guys, I mean, isn't one war enough? So uh, that's the kind of thing that, took, uh, you know, that uh, happened. And Burke McCarty, who wrote the book, The Suppressed Truth About the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln, in the book she made an aside, and that book was written in like in 21, I guess, or 22, whatever. And in it she said, right now, the Jesuits are in Japan instigating anti-American sentiment among Japan for a, for a future war. She wrote that in the 20s. Unbelievable. Wow. So they're already setting that up. Yes, we're Man, already in the, That's right. That's right. So now, it, just, well, I, let ahead. me just finish this off real quick. My point is, when people wonder if this next world war is, is already being, like, laid out, without a doubt, because what does that tell you? We weren't in one yet. And we're going to get in two. We're getting people prepared for that. So what do you think happened after Vietnam? Or what do you think happened after World War II? They were getting ready for the next one. So, you know, and here we are. And you've got to have all the propaganda in there for a number of years so that you, have, you can hate the, your future enemy. And then everybody goes off to war to kill the bad guy. And, you know, people make money and people die. And it'll happen again. <laughs> so. Yeah. And the bankers or whoever, you know, whoever has the property moves to China, you know, that's what they've done already, you know, <laughs> or something like that. 
like they did in Germany. They built up Germany, and and now they've built up China, you know, to be the big powerhouse, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable how they, I mean, they're, they're 20, 30, 40 years ahead in their planning, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is not about one nation punching the other nation in the nose saying, let's fight. It's not about that. It's, it's all instigated. I mean, I read something from an affidavit by a woman who was a paramour of John Wilkes Booth and bore a child by him. And before she died, she wrote an extensive test of testimony about her life and her involvement with John Wilkes Booth. Get this, after he supposedly died. But what she wrote in, the, and I, I think I did it with Michael, I mean, what this woman wrote about the nature of wars and who makes money, and, and I mean, and, and she wrote this in 1910. And she had been a nurse during the Civil War, and that must not have been a very pleasant situation considering uh, how advanced medical technology was at the time. So, you know, it's, it's the way of the world. It happens continually. And like you said, they write things out, the historians do, because they're getting paid to do that. Uh, but the thing is, the revisionist history, historians are the ones who write the mainstream crap. And the ones they call revisionists are the ones that are telling you the truth. So, there you go. Well, it's like they do it almost immediately anymore, you know. It's like, like with 9-11. I, you know, it took me a long time to even consider that was, a, you know, about that. But they, looking back, they started that. They started changing that almost the first day and setting that up, you know, like that. This is the story we want you to believe. Well, I tell you what. Um, this is this is the good. Well, the only salvageable information that's good usually takes place in the first 24 hours, maybe 48. With regard to um, 9/11, uh, the news that came out uh, on the Wednesday, the 12th, and a little bit into Thursday, the 14th. If you went in there and read all the accounts that took place, you would find the stories contradicting themselves right, right from there. Now, I thought, I mean, I was up there at the time when it happened. I was only about eight miles away, um, but I didn't realize what was going on because I was just taking a walk through the old neighborhood, which I was wont to do uh, every so often back in the, the hood in Jersey. Um, and I believed that that's what happened. But then when I got a chance to sit down and start reading, I'm like, something is not right here either. Um, and I'm going to go through some particulars, but you could debunk the, the government story, the mainstream story, just by using the, the uh, mainstream pieces right there and then. They did the same thing in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. The, I mean, the first looking back and studying that, the, the, local, the local reporters did a pretty good job at it, you know, that first day. But then they came in and they, they took over and, and squelched all that, you know. Well, Bill Cooper, uh, in a site that he had probably 10 years ago, uh, he had video clips of area news people describing what happened, and it was bombs inside the Murrow building and bombs inside the Murrow building and more than one explosion. So there you go. And then what happens is, you know, um, oh, no, it was just one. That's all there was, and there were no other bombs in the building, blah, blah, blah. So you're right. And I'll tell you what, it was the same thing with the Lusitania. They blamed the Germans for shooting two, two torpedoes, but the Germans only shot one. And I think you might have heard the story about the Germans, uh, uh, Secretary of State, or the equivalent of, sending an ad over to, 
to uh, the United States saying, will you please place this in about 50 um, major dailies? And it was saying, people, do not get on the Lusitania. The United States and Britain are using passengers as human shields because in the holes of these ships are ammunitions and stores for Britain. And that is in violation of, I think they call it the cruiser rules or something. And Germany said, if you go over, you're going to get sunk. And they went over and Germany sunk them. But there was a second explosion that wasn't from the torpedo. It was either sabotage or eventual detonation of the ammunition that was on that ship. So you see there again, you know, we, the terrible Germans, they sunk those innocent passengers. We, they gave us fair warning and Wilson didn't do anything about it. And neither did Churchill. They turned their backs while innocents were drowned in, in sight of land. That's yeah. your government for you. And they're yeah. all like that. They all suck. <laughs> so uh, how did you get turned on to uh, the Jesuits and the Vatican connection to all of this? I, I, I mean, Michael, I don't know about Michael, but the way I got turned on was through Lori. Lori's on tonight. And her talk, her she had a uh, has had a program, Lori's Talk News Radio, and she had these two guys, Tom Fress and Walt Stickle, that were talking about this. And the first time I ever heard that, I thought, man, that fits. That just fits. I don't know how did you come to understand that. You talk a lot about that. Uh, one night, uh, I was I couldn't sleep. Uh, this was in the days of the Walkman, so. I didn't have bugs. You know, I had the earphones on. And I'm listening to Jeff Rents, and he has on Eric John Phelps. So I'm listening to Phelps, and I'm listening and listening, and I'm like, this guy is either, you know, wackading hoy, or he is on to something. And I tended to believe the latter only because he was pretty encyclopedic in his resources. So what happened was I, I, I contacted Phelps, I think by email, and we talked a little bit about the book, and he sent me a bibliography, and I, that's what I went to first, the bibliographies, because Phelps isn't necessarily, and I'm, this isn't a, a cut on uh, Phelps, even though he's kind of gotten a little interesting in the last few years, but uh, he is somebody who collated tons of information, which, I mean, research's job is, is quite daunting, and he's, it's not like he invented this whole thing. Now, when I first heard it, and I don't know anybody, I, I'm sure you guys also. And Lori, I mean, I'm sure that when you first hear about the Jesuits, like, what, are you nuts? Because it just seems so implausible, but then you have to understand what's the greatest disguise in the world, but to be, to be, uh, well, to not be able to believe that you could do such a thing. In other words, an example, when um, Albanians were, were bringing, um, munitions under the radar for the Serbian Bosnian thing. They were doing it in boxcars that were painted and they made up some like organization with Mother Teresa's name in it. And they said they were sending farm implements. Well, who's going to doubt Mother Teresa? Of course not. But there you go. All you got to do is slap somebody's name in there who's an icon who kind of uh, engenders this kind of uh, image. And you wouldn't dare think that and it's not Mother Teresa's fault, by the way, but you see, I mean, it's, a, it's a great disguise. I mean, Keith Green, uh, who uh, wrote a great Christian singer-songwriter, wrote the, uh, a song, uh, Nobody Believes in Me Anymore, which is Satan laughing about the fact that it's like, yeah, nobody believes in me. Isn't this great? And it's the same thing with the Jesuits. I mean, 
they've been at it for about five or six centuries. You know, well, they put the name of the group is the Society of Jesus. How can anybody with that name? Well, that's just the reason why it works. <laughs> they, they, they use the name of Jesus, and of course, they are probably one of the most dynamic, efficient, and diabolical organizations who, who just stay back in the shadows. They let the Vatican and the White Pope take care of it and be the front person. But I'll tell you what, European history is just rife with stories about the perfidy of the Jesuits. So now when you come to the United States, everybody thinks it's a big joke because we really don't know much about European history and we don't know what happened in the 19th century when there was a major, major anti-Vatican and anti-Catholic sentiment in the United States. And what captures that to a certain extent is that movie, uh, Gangs of New York, the nativists versus all the um, immigrants. So that's what, I, what happened. I started researching it, and I said, oh, my goodness, yes, this is true. And then once you know that, you'll see, you should see how many times that you've written, uh, read stuff, excuse me, and, and poured over stuff and saw the name Jesuits and, and previously, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a bunch of monks or something. You know, who cares? And that's what you're supposed to think. But once you know, you realize their footprints are all over the place for five, five centuries. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's just what we were saying about the history books. If you go back before 1900, there's hundreds of books about them, you know? There's, a, I mean, a lot of books. And, yeah. and after that, it's like nothing. It's like, man. And so today, uh, it's like people don't, we don't even know about I didn't know much about it. I, I didn't even think when I started hearing about that, I thought, well, man, why don't we know anything about it? It's because for the last hundred years, it's been, it's been totally uh, suppressed, and we don't know anything. So you have to go back before 1900 to get these books, you know? But, you know, Christians should be a little bit more attuned to this, because what we're seeing, and when I was talking to Michael a few weeks ago, I mean, the New World Order is, is Satan's plan to take over the world. And so the Bible and secular history are completely congruent. And if you understand it comes down to a battle between good and evil, why would you not find, if you would, a, a faux, a quasi-religious entity that is behind world domination? Because it's, it's the Vatican, which we use as kind of an object, as we say the White House when we mean the president. But the Vatican is, is an entity unto itself. And it's always had a political uh, side to it, mostly greater than its ecclesiastical side. But uh, we're, we're, what we're seeing right now is the, the deception because Roman Catholicism will be brought to people as a form or probably the main strain of uh, ecumenism. And it's going to be a total embracer, all-encompassing, you know, give us everybody. Um, but it's, it's a canard. It's a snare, but that's what's going to happen. They're going to come on as being ecumenical, and after this next war is over, it's going to be, oh, let's just all be one big happy family and just believe in us. So yeah. I mean, that's, that's civilization <laughs> in 10 seconds, but there it is. Yeah, you had one of the calls I was listening to the other day. You, you, you had a, I think you call it, uh, there's the history of the universe in 30 seconds, and it was pretty good. Do you remember that? <laughs> Are we talking about the, the poem by Robinson Jeffers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. 
I did send it to you, didn't I? Yeah. You know, but this this is a guy that was brokenhearted about this war because he had a bit of an attachment to Japan. He lived in California and, of course, was an American. And because he was so grieved by the fact that these two nations would go to battle, um, he, he wrote things that were very, um, uh, I guess you'd want to call it scathing, but, I mean, hypercritical of the United States. And, and of course, this is the country which everybody loves to hunt loves to hug the Constitution and your freedom of expression. So what did the good Americans do when he came out with a message that was less than popular? They censored him. Beautiful. So, but that poem, you can just feel the person's resignation to the fact that it's never going to change. I mean, that's, that's at least what I see. When I saw that poem, which was in a book by uh, Hunter S. Thompson, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72, I saw that poem, and it hit me right between the eyes when I first read it, and I wasn't even thinking about the way things were today. And sure enough, I mean, he's right. So, I mean, that, that's why when people keep saying that we're going to go back to something, let's get back to this or that, it's like, well, what is that something that you want to go back to? Because chances are it wasn't what you thought it was. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. the way of keeping people, you know, swimming between two islands thinking that the other one was better. Most of the yeah. time you just spent it in the water anyway, so... <laughs> Yeah, you're still a slave anywhere you go, you know. So, what do you think are some of the most uh, significant things that you have discovered? I'll just ask it like that. All right, without, with, with not much time to explain every one, you'll have to take my word on this one, but they, they've come up of, um, of recent time. Uh, one was the understanding that as much as everybody likes to run their mouth about Protestants being in uh, the 13 uh, colonies turned states, uh, that God shed his grace on us because Protestants came over here and blah, blah, blah. There were quite a few Romanists that were over here too, and Maryland was rife with Roman Catholics. I mean, that whole state was dedicated to Roman Catholics. Uh, the Lords of Baltimore, which gives you Baltimore. I mean, you look at every single county name, and it's named after some, some figure in British history. Um, and they pretty much, it looks, I mean, Michoud found this uh, from a Catholic, uh, some kind of a <clears throat> historical quarterly they have, and I can't remember the name of it, but it talked about how um, a person by the name of Pope, this is too good to be true, <laughs> Pope was granted a tract of land and he set up a farm, um, which is pretty much where the capital is. And he named the, that knob that is the hill, Capital Line, which is one of the um, mountains of the seven that are around Rome. Um, he had a creek that coursed his property. He, co- he named that the Tiber. <laughs> and, I mean, and, and so what happens? The District of Isis was created right on his farm, it was almost if um, Europeans and the Vatican and Britain in particular said, okay, listen, when this whole, this whole new country gets started, they're gonna, this is going to be the capital right here. And they picked it out. And I don't know if you heard us talking about this, but how many people ever asked themselves, what in the world is this, uh, Columbia about? Yeah. What's the District of Columbia? Yeah. You know, what's with the female uh, personifications, you know, in Newark, New, York, uh, New York Harbor, excuse me, um, and sitting on the top of the Capitol. And that's another thing. They changed the name of that statue so to get away from what it was previously called, which was the goddess of liberty. So 
Nobody asked yeah. Columbia. It, it's a manifestation of Satan's counterfeit um, Lord, and that is the Queen of Heaven. That's what Columbia is. That's what the Statue of Liberty is. You know, so I have to laugh when, when, when Christians want to, I mean, and don't get me wrong. I'm a Christian, but, I mean, I'm not buying what we've been told, most of which, if not all, doesn't come from the Bible. It comes actually from public education. That's what's yeah. interesting. And that's why the Bible was in school throughout the whole time I went. But that little propaganda that government, uh, Christians, all are one, we're good, we never do anything bad, so whatever we decide to do, like genocide the native peoples for about 100 years, it's okay. Yeah. So you see what I'm saying? Oh, it's, it's amazing. It's propaganda, and Christians have bought it lock, stock, and barrel, but you cannot find that kind of support, that information in Scripture. And it's amazing to me that I was, I was a pastor for, for 30 years, and it never even dawned on me about the obelisk or about the, all of this pagan stuff all over the place because we were never taught this in church or in the Bible college I went to. They never even, I mean, Christians are the most gullible people and including myself, I, I mean, it's just unbelievable how gullible we are, you know? But we were all like that. I mean, I was too. But at some point, I stepped back and said, listen, what does Scripture say about this? I mean, if you only dealt with the Gospels, you'd find out how wrong this country has gone and how wrong-minded a lot of Christians are. And although it's not a very popular stance, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, take a look at what Jesus said. You know, I mean... <clears throat> this whole idea about getting involved in politics. And I, and I wrote you guys that uh, an email. Well, we should have Christian. No, we shouldn't have Christian politicians. What did the Lord say? I mean, he meant more than just money when he talked about give unto Caesar's what Caesar's. And when he, when he talked later about when, he, when Peter uh, plucked the coin from the fish's mouth, and, and he said, uh, Jesus said to Peter, who pays tribute, the king's children or strangers? And Peter said, strangers. He said, okay, now go pay them. Why, why did he say that? Because we are strangers. We yeah. are peculiar people who do not belong to this. I don't care who's running what. I don't vote because they can put anybody they want in any office. I could not care less. They all suck. And when good people and Christians try to become politicians, it's like somebody wearing a white robe walking through a cesspool. The only thing you're going to do is get dirty. And that's all there is. Let them take care of that. I never saw what the Lord said in his uh, Great Commission, that we should go out and run for office with back politicians. He was, what did he say? He said, share the gospel, feed my sheep. You yeah. know, all the time that's wasted with these Christian candidates and all this stuff. It's not what he wanted. Is it my idea? Not mine. I'm looking at what Jesus said. And I, and I was talking to Michael that, uh, the other day, and I said, isn't it interesting in those two episodes that I refer to, with Peter plucking the coin from the fish's mouth, and with the Pharisees showing the, a coin with Caesar's likeness, Jesus never touches the coin. Because the coin is of Satan. It is not godly. Money is not godly. Banking is not godly. We're all stuck in it. You all understand that. But Jesus laid it out. You know, they would not be money if people had adhered to divine law. So here we are. So that's how far we've gone away from everything. And the whole bit about war, again, everybody asks questions why the churches didn't do anything with Hitler. Because they were in lockstep with Hitler. They went back in Hitler because they thought Hitler was right. So what do we have Christians doing now? 
All right? I'm not saying that Christians should be soldiers. If you're going to be that, you're going to be that. All right? I'm not judging that. I'm not. But all I'm saying is that we believe the government is, is supposed to be Christian at its roots, and therefore we back what's happening. We are in line with this new right that is us. We are the fifth right. And, of course, the churches are just Yahoo. You know, let's, go, let's kill all those Muslims. So, you know, here, here we are. How do we get here? Because people stopped reading scripture and started listening to people and not asking questions. How many yeah. preachers are preaching what is not accurate? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you want it's amazing that that the Christians, the evangelical Christians in America are some of the most raw, raw, raw go get them people, you know? It's like they're neocon, you know, they're ready to go. <laughs> And I, I mean, back in my day, I guess I was like that too, you know, but something about the 9-11 deal just did not, it did not set right in how that was set up and what they did after that, you know. Well, but let's go back in time. I mean, how in the world did Christians brook the genocide of Native peoples started in about, what, 1830 and yeah. continued to the end of the century? How in the world did you make it right in your mind that you had a Savage the savages. Yeah. Where, that, where was that? Where did you find scripture for that? But you know what they do? They'll go back in Old Testament times. You know, when, when Jehovah had to deal with certain kind of peoples a little bit mm, harshly, shall we say? But with the New Testament and the coming of grace, there's nothing about violence in there as being a cure. And still, Americans stood back and allowed our military to kill how many millions of people because they made the sin of being here first. Yeah, and it's amazing how many, they don't even keep track of how many we kill over there, you know. I mean, I remember back when Bush was in, and they would have this count every night on about Bush, you know, about how many of our guys were getting killed. But they never talk about how many we're killing over there. There is, there is less uh, transparency, and they'll give you all kinds of reasons why that has to be. Okay, okay. With Vietnam, they showed too much of what happened. Frankly, it, it created the revolt that was the peace movement. Uh, it ended in chaos in, in a tense state. So they're never going to make that mistake again, and they haven't. So we don't see a whole lot. We don't even know what's going on. It's like Orwell sell, said about people having a vague notion of wars, you know, somewhere abroad. Uh, they're not going to make that. No, that's not going to happen again. Um, but I'll just say this to tie this all up. Uh, and again, with Michael, we talked about this. I mean, when I read Brzezinski's The Grand Chessboard in 1994, um, there was, he had stated in the book more than once that the United States would be unwise to agitate an axis of Iran, China, and Russia. And I thought that strange because it's like, wow, you know, we haven't been messing with the Iranians, you know, for over, what, 15, 20 years. What's, what's this about? It just seemed like strange bedfellows. But now I understand. And, like, Brzezinski's one of those insiders, you know, who was never elected to a post, but he was with every administration, like Kissinger. They just are always there like familiar spirits. <clears throat> and Brzezinski was given us a nod and a look into the future. And I take that very seriously because it echoes what had been written before at the beginning of the century by Mackinder uh, when he talked about the next empire, the last empire, would be the one that controls what he called the heartland, which is pretty much where uh, the Ukraine is, uh, some of the former Soviet republics, 
and down a little bit into the Middle East. So what I'm telling you is there is a war being cooked, and Iran is going to be an instigation and a fuse. But it's, it gives China and Russia the opportunity to meet us on their chessboard, if you will. And it is not going to go well for us this time around. We're the ones that are the interlopers, and we're the ones that are going to have a heck of a time trying to sustain um, a war effort through supply lines because we're the ones that are going to have to fly it over, sail it over. Europe and China, as McKinder said, don't need navies. They have them great, but they don't need navies because it's all landlocked, and it's going to be any kind of problem for those two armies to be able to sustain uh, any kind of uh, intrigue. And so I'm, I'm telling you straight out, the United States is going to get its ever-loving butt kicked, and this country will never be the same again, and people will never, ever uh, come back uh, to normal again. Because we're the ones that are going to this, – this war is meant to do us like World War II was meant to do Germany. Now it's our turn on the wheel to take a fall for the uh, globalists. Yeah, that's about how I see it, too. What do you think about – they've always set up Russia and China are like – they can't even get along together. You know, they're always against each other. But it's like – I don't – I bet they're in bed all the time, you know. But, uh, I mean, what we get for public consumption is strictly soap opera stuff. You know, it, it's, it's all the bad guys, good guys, da, 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 and it gets everybody worked up. But, but all these things are taken care of behind the scenes. I don't even know if all the military commanders know what's going on. They may not. They probably don't. I mean, otherwise, I think uh, Patton would have still been, been alive years after the war was over. I mean, you realize it was rigged. Uh, he just um, had a, uh, an accident, if you, uh, you should say that. But, uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, and you said it before. I mean, it's like a game of risk. It's like country A doesn't like country B until country A and country B find country C somebody that's a threat to both of them, you know, so the enemy of your enemy is your friend. And that's what this stuff goes on all the time. Like I said, Britain and France didn't fight on the same side until 1855. It's a long time not to be friends. So it's all rigged. It's all rigged. Yeah, that's what it seems to me, too. It's all somebody's planning it and setting it up, and it's like a almost like a movie, you know, they're setting up and this is what's going to happen, you know. So what are your, what are your thoughts? I mean, with all of the, the time and effort and thought that you put into where you are, <clears throat> what are your thoughts about what you would recommend people uh, today do that are, oh, I don't care for the phrase everybody talks about when they woke up, you know, but <clears throat> people that are concerned about what's coming, what's your recommendation about that? You know, it's tough, but I mean, in a practical sense, and you had asked me this before the show started about getting out of Florida as a way of uh, ducking the worst that could possibly happen in a, uh, a survivalist scenario down in Florida. And part of that is the case. Um, I want to stay away from cities, reduce one's profile as much as possible. One of the worst things people are doing nowadays is blabbing their mouths off on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, high electronic profile, 
people just spilling their guts and surveilling themselves and tattling on themselves. Um, I'm not not on any of it. I don't need it. you don't, organizations don't really do any good because they get corrupted pretty fast uh, to with the 9-11 truthers, which more like the 9-11 roofers. So the thing is, is that if you can find a close circle of friends or whatever uh, of like mind that would be able to have each other's back, and I'm not talking militarily, I'm talking about feeding one another, caring for one another. Uh, to me, that's the only way to go. You're not going to change this thing. There's nobody going to stop this critical mass that's coming. Our country is turning totalitarian. Every administration has done its, its bid. Now that we've had eight years of a Democrat, you're going to get eight years at least of a Republican. It's going to be Jeb Bush. And they're going to harken back to the days of yore with Daddy Bush and Shrub Bush and how great that was when, of course, we all knew they both were idiots. But that's what the propaganda machine is going to do. So you can't, you, you're not going to fight this thing. You're not going to stop this runaway train. But I think you can find going back in time, in a sense, and getting back to really just what the necessities were uh, will probably do you the most good. Um, And it may be an unsatisfactory solution on my part or at least some kind of uh, behavior that would keep you out of the crosshairs. But cities and running your mouth uh, is not going to do you any good. That's just the way it is. I mean, it's not because I'm a Christian and I believe in the life everlasting that I feel this way, but you've got to take a look around and see what's happening and understand this is not our world. And that's all there is. You know, all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to bring back anything, frankly, that never was. It's just, you know, it's just a myth. It's just the way we are. So that's what I'm saying. I mean, I, I want to go to a rural situation. I miss the mountains. And I'd like to, uh, you know, we're not, we don't have to live very well, I mean, very uh, ornately. We're pretty much driven just by necessities, not by wants. And I, I believe my wife and I can pull that off, and that's what we're looking to do in one to two years. But Lord knows what's going to happen before that time. I may never get yeah. out of here. Yeah. That's, I mean, that seems to me really good advice. That that's, to me, that's about where we are, too. That That's about the best that, I mean... You can just hope to survive through this, and I, it's not going to come back. It's it's not going to come back, and you need to have some kind of a. And that's what the, my understanding of the New Testament church is. That's what they were. They were just a little. They were a band of people that cared about each. They helped each other with the necessities of life, with with surviving. You know, and that's what we need today. Uh, America has a tremendous hubris, despite the fact that, I mean, you can argue that we didn't, whatever win means, win the Vietnam War, um, and here we are spending as much time as we did in Vietnam with some questionable results. I'm not making fun of soldiers. Soldiers do what they do because they believe it's the right thing. That's what they're told. Uh, But I do believe that the military has been misused for about a century, which is one of the reasons why this country was created anyway to do that kind of job, to be the hitman for, for the money people. But our usefulness is coming to an end. Uh, Americans don't think we're ever going to get smacked upside the head, but we are, and I'm not happy about it. And I'm not a Marxist, and I'm not a communist, I'm not anything. I just know that the way of the world and governments are crap. And they always have been, and they always will be. 
You know, if, uh, we all feel a tinge of patriotism when stuff happens, but it's really just because we've been propagandized. We've had it better than a lot of other countries have. There's no doubt about it. But now, you know, the cannons point at us, and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, I was. We went to our <clears throat> our granddaughters. Uh, they have this spring concert at school. They go to school, and and I I was just noticing this last night. They do the star, you know, the Star Spangled Banner, and it's like there's we have been so conditioned, you almost, you almost tear up at that, you know, it's like people just, you know, it's like, it's almost like worship. It's almost like this is a spiritual experience here. We're singing the Star Spangled Banner. (laughs) And I, I I just thought about that last night when they went through that, you know. But you see, here's a great example of the matrix we're in. Leaving the Star Star Spangled Banner for a second, the Pledge of Allegiance, written by Francis Bellamy, who was a stone socialist, that Pledge of Allegiance is all about someone who believes that people should give their all and everything to advance the collective. You are nothing to the state. You are nothing in yourself unless you're something to the state. That's what Bellamy meant. That thing is, you know, doesn't it say in Scripture, take no oath to anyone? Yeah. All right, so why are we doing the Pledge of Allegiance? And then we do it to a flag with 50 occult pentagrams on it. You know? And I mean, so here we are. And i got to tell you something. I think that the website is uh, rexcurry.net. He is a, uh, oh, Rex was, Rex was great. He's a Tampa lawyer, and he is a real firecracker. Let me see if I can find his site. Uh, yep, it's still there, rexcurry.net. You should see the photos in the, at the late 19th century, when students would go outside and gather around the, uh, what we call it, a flagpole, <laughs> and they gave the, the socialist salute. The only reason why that thing went away was because of, of Hitler using it with the na- uh, Nazi socialists. But he's got pictures of kids, you know, gather around a flagpole to start the day, and there they go with the Sig Heil hand- uh, um, salute and doing the pledge. I mean, oh my, and I'm not, you got to go there, rexcurry.net. It'll knock your socks off. So here we've got a pledge written by a socialist. We get a flag that's a cult, and we're saluting it with what would be known as, as previously a Roman salute and then later as a Nazi salute. Tell me, tell me what's going on here, will you? <laughs> it's just, a, it is amazing how they have so conditioned our minds to just swallow all this stuff and just not just swallow it, but to really believe it deep down in us, you know? Well, but we, I was there. And I mean, I'm not making excuses for it. That's what I believe. And I believe America was always right. Da, 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 da. And then you start having experiences where that doesn't work out. And then you're wondering what in the world's wrong with this picture. Uh, usually if people make a lot of money in their lives and have great jobs and security, they don't really care. That just seems to be the way it is. Um, if you're not one of the haves, then you start to take a look around at just exactly what's going on and how, for the most part, the playing field is not level. And the deck is rigged. So, and you realize that it happens here and everywhere else. It's just the way it is. So uh, the fact that this is, we're gonna, I mean, could anybody actually countenance the fact that we're going to be nothing but a blink in time? 
I mean, we think we're all that, but we may not even show up on a timeline, depending on how much longer we got, you know, for this earth. I know. I know. So, but there you go. I mean, it starts right out from the very beginning, um, indoctrinating children. And that's why I'm telling you that the Bible was in school, to try to make that amalgam of government being good, government being Christian, therefore whatever government wants you to do, you do. And that worked pretty well. And that's, that's why I'm saying they took the Bible out of, out of the, the schools. That may not have been a bad idea. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah just, it just we have been uh, hoodwinked into believing that it, it's all Christian. It's all good, you know. And so we rah-rah and cheer it, you know. Well, Let me, uh, you, you have a few minutes for questions. I'll, we'll wrap it up in just a few minutes here. I, I promise to. Uh, just take you take an hour of your time. I appreciate it. Does anybody is anybody listening out there have any comments or questions for Keith? That could be dangerous. <laughs> I see that uh, Michael found Rex Curry's site uh, some other way, but that's that's him. Oh yeah, beautiful. <clears throat> hey hey brothers, this is Michael. Hey, Michael, Can you hear me? Yeah, okay, here. Well, I answer a couple of your questions. Uh, the first time I heard about the Jesuits was actually through Keith and Gordon Comstock about three years ago, three and a half years ago. But it was through Lori Berkebile and her show. Lori's here with us. And uh, Tom Frest, that they solidified it for me. <laughs> and it, it just went right over my head when and Keith and Gordon Comstock were talking about the Jesuits. didn't mean anything, you know. <clears throat> The other thing it meant to me was uh, the Jesuits. I, we have two Jesuit high schools in my town. Okay, cool. Uh, big deal, right? <clears throat> the other thing, too, was uh, as far as uh, Lusitanian, uh, Lusitania, that would be James Perloff that you had. You had, uh, yeah. Was it yeah, James, yeah, kid, James Corbett on interviewing him. And so, yeah, this week is the 100th anniversary of that, just so you know. So, and, uh, I bring up one more thing, if it's all right with you gentlemen, and that is talk, going back with what Keith was saying about, you know, when they really get us going in this third world war and we're spread thin and fighting over there in the Eurasia. <clears throat> I don't know if you gentlemen heard about this, but in China, is uh, along with Pakistan, are going to build a... 3,000-kilometer network of roads, railways, and energy projects for the Chinese city of Akushgar with Pakistan port of uh, Zagwadar. Once completed, it will serve the primary gateway for trade between China, the Middle East, and Africa. It's a very big issue because right now they have to sail through the South China Sea and Indian China Sea to get to... uh, uh, what is that? That strait there between Africa and the Middle East into the, the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean. Obviously, when they have the supply line done, it's going to tie in with what Keith is saying about this war that, that they're going to have, and go along with Keith saying that they will need to use ships or planes or anything like that. Yeah. So it's just something to think about, and it's a big, big deal in their part of the world. Huge deal. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. That makes sense of a lot of what's going on over there. Yeah. 
uh, if there's nobody out there, I was just going to say something. I don't know if I should do this. I know it's going to be redundant. Um, Michael, you know that I uh, broke down that scenario that came from that book, The Menaces Chronicles. Okay. Uh, should I should I state that here? Absolutely. Well, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> it's just that <laughs> when people talk about what they think the ha- what's going to happen in the future, the Rosicrucians out of uh, Quakersville. That's Quakersville, not Quarryville. Quakerstown, Quakerstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, the website soul.org, S-O-U-L uh, dot O-R-G. Uh, the Rosicrucians are kind of mystical and very much, uh, they're not really a secret society, but they kind of are. But uh, there was a book written called The Menisus Chronicles, and Menisus is spelled M-A-N-I-S-I-S, Man Isis. And it was written with a pseudonym, but the person uh, provided a scenario about what would happen in the United States. And uh, he painted a picture of our being invaded and not really many soldiers around to repel it. And the only thing that stopped it was a global uh, geological cataclysm where soldiers from countries didn't know that country was still there or what was going on. And so it terminated the invasion. But the, uh, the language is something to the effect about the old world finally uh, giving the new world uh, a comeuppance. And I'll tell you what, that to me sounds extremely plausible. Uh, they also are the ones who, in 1913, in their 68th convocation, said that uh, when Mexico was brought back into the United States, it will be as days of old. And then the capstone can be placed atop the truncated pyramid. So they saw, in a sense, the North American Union, which is in process now, slowly, but, you know, surely. And there's something going on with them, but I thought it was interesting that that scenario just struck me. You know, we've not been invaded. We've not had a, really a scratch on us here. That's all going to change. So um, that's, that, to me, sounds extremely uh, plausible, but that has to happen. And... Um, <clears throat> I have some other good news too, but <laughs> <laughs> I just made money on my insurance. So. <laughs> uh, uh, I just uh, thanks a lot for being with us tonight, Keith. I I hope that you all. Uh, I hope the move goes good. I uh, we have moved so many times that I I God bless you for moving. You know. <laughs> That that's I mean that's a uh, very unpleasant task. I hope all of that goes well, and I hope that you will keep uh, keep doing some of what you're doing, because what you've been doing for the last ten, thirteen years, uh, I'm sure has impacted a lot of people, and uh, we appreciate it very much. And I appreciate personally uh, your uh, very kind, gracious offer just to come and do this tonight. Well, you posed a lot of questions in the email, and I, I just thought maybe this would be a good time. And, and it's funny because moving, I'm in the old place. My wife's in a new place. And if you could see the, the wreckage that is our lives that surround me, <laughs> you'd understand why I wouldn't mind talking to somebody tonight. <laughs> but um, there's just one other thing I'd like to say, and that is we, uh, Kelly and I, got a, a, just a a blast of emails. Something's going on out there, and I, I would assume it probably has got to do with a chat room somewhere. 
that we're getting contacted as if we could provide information because of the informer in Montgomery, uh, either to become sovereign citizens or to get out of the IRS. And I exchanged an email with, with a, an individual who was very sentient. But uh, these people think that, like, we're in, we're in servitude, and if we can get out of the IRS, we're not going to be slaves anymore. And I stated to him, going, look, first of all, we're slaves because we have a body that we're trapped in that's going to, that's going to I mean, starts decaying almost the day you were born. Uh, and so, and, and let's face it, I mean, this is Earth, and Satan runs the show. But getting out of the IRS isn't going to really secure you anything. Secondly, she could not brook the fact that there wasn't a happy ending. She's saying, well, you're telling me there's no hope. But when you're dealing with somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ, what are you going to say? Well, there is hope, but you want it here? Do you want a, a human solution? We're not going to get it. And you can knock yourself against the wall for as long as you want, but it's not going to come. People are going to have to get to be adults and understand that sometimes in history there are some rough, rough patches. And as I always give the example, I mean, what would you do if you were five years old in 1935 when the Germans walked into Warsaw? You know, yeah. what, what kind of future was out there for you? What are you going to say? You know, in the Ecclesiastes, I believe, says time and chance befall us all. That's, that's right. the way it goes. That's you right. Know, but the one, thing that's, the one thing that's constant is the Lord. And she uh, called him the creator and wanted to know why the creator didn't do this and the creator didn't do that. I'm saying, well, the creator's not a genie. And the creator, I really don't know. I don't know anyone by that name. But you see my point? It's like sometimes the news is bad, but it isn't the end of anything. And if it is, it's the beginning of something better. Yeah. I'm not trying to be a fatalist. It just is. And unfortunately, you might get a lick of what other countries have known for centuries. It's now coming to a neighborhood near you. You want to get That's kicked true. off? Fine. You want to say it's not going to happen? Fine. Ain't going to change a thing other than the yeah. fact that you're not dealing with reality, so. That's really right. That's really right. I mean, I don't know how. Nobody can read through the Bible without getting that message that you just said. I mean, most of the history of the world has not been like the last 50 years in America. Right. <laughs> uh, uh. I mean, the story of governments is a story of repeated failure. So, you know, what, do you, what else do you want to know? <laughs> what are you expecting? And we yeah. have a whole past to look at for like centuries and maybe millennia, and people aren't getting it. But so it goes. But listen, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. I, I thank you for writing me. Uh, you had written a number of uh, pretty poignant questions that I figured, you know, if I write another email to answer you and I, and I, and I somehow abort it, I, <laughs> and we just talked and we did. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, Keith, and God bless, and hope your move goes really well. Okay. And I hope you hope you keep doing what you're doing. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be in some kind of form, but, uh, yeah, Kelly and I made a, a commitment to try to keep it up there for as long as we're allowed to keep it up there. And it's just, okay. it's just information. I'm not trying to sell anything or anything. You know, it's just avail yourself of it and... Uh, you know, you're going you're gonna to test it, and you're going to take it, you're going to leave it. Most people leave it, but, you know, that's not a big surprise. Yeah. He's got enough 
Uh, the, the website, again, is thinkorbebeaten.com, and there's enough in that to, for the rest of your life <laughs> to chew on. It's really good. Thanks a lot, uh, Keith, and thanks for everybody that's uh, listening tonight. God bless all of you. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. Good night, now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.